Hello and welcome to this episode of Fashion History with American Duchess. I am your host, Abby Cox. Lauren cannot join us today because she is in Nevada and I am currently in Virginia with Miss Samantha McCarty. Say hi, Samantha. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, Samantha is joining me today to talk about 17th century women's dress, correct? Yes. Excellent. And your research in this and the things that you've made. Um, so I'm really excited. I think maybe you agree with me on this, but that 17th century, especially well, almost all 17th century. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, maybe really? not just, I mean, no, all of it. It's just kind of this. Yeah. Other than, I guess, maybe the 1660s, because it's in Janet Arnold. So people. Yeah. But you don't ever but, see a lot, especially no. in America, people yeah. don't. Yeah. But. It is this kind of unknown mm-hmm. in the realm it's of sort costuming. Of just, you kind of jump over yeah. it, <laughs> get right to the 18th like, century. Yeah. There was some reformation and some weird yeah. stuff going on. And yeah. That hair, y'all, is just not <laughs> the cutest. So skip it to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. But so, but you study it and you make it and you wear it. I do. And so we're going to talk about that I today. Do. Um, so let's just get right into it. What years within the 17th century do you study? the most um i'm specifically looking um at i would probably say about 1600 to 1624 and that that date is really specific because Mm -hmm. um of the one of the museums that i do work at where Mm -hmm. we are interpreting the 17th century um which would be jamestown settlement and we are interpreting um, the period of you know, early colonization in Virginia, um, since Jamestown was the first permanent English settlement mm-hmm. in um, North America, the way that the colony was founded basically was that they, the Virginia Company received a charter from the king. So it's not a royal colony like okay. some other ones. They're a private company. They're out here to make money. Um, and their charter is revoked in 1624. Mm-hmm. So we don't really look at much past that in okay. terms of our interpretation and, and what we talk about a lot. But um, I guess even more specifically <laughs> than that, um, 1610 to 1614 are the years that we actually interpret on oh. site at our recreation of James Fort. Oh, um, but as I'll, I'm sure I'll get into as we talk about this, the 17th century, at least in this part of the 17th century, and looking specifically at North America, and even more specifically at Virginia, in some instances, we have a lot of information about what was going on, mm-hmm. and in others, like in clothing, <laughs> there's a little less. Okay. There's still, you know, really great stuff out there, mm-hmm. but it's not as if I was studying the clothing of the revolution, the American mm. Revolution. Yeah. So Population, um, <laughs> information, exactly. all of that comes exactly. into play. So that can be kind of difficult. And because of that, we tend to open up the range of dates that we look at mm. um, in terms of material culture for studying the kind of things that we want out on site, whether that's clothes or whether that's you know gardening tools or kitchen implements. So for our purposes at the museum we actually go from 1580 to 1630 oh, in terms of the material culture that we look just at just to say to help yeah to really kind of round holes, out exactly exactly fill in the gaps <laughs> fascinating so with your job you you focus on clothing do you focus on women's dress or do you focus do you do both I do both and honestly I do more men's clothing really? which is in line with the the makeup of the mm, people. Yeah, that's true. That makes more sense. <laughs> so there were always more men than mm-hmm. women um, 
in the beginning, I mean, in 1607, when the first group come over, it's all men. Yeah. It's not until 1608 where we get the first two women. Mm-hmm. From then on, slowly there are more women. And then in 1619 is when the first group of women come over specifically to get married and start new lives. So we're almost at the tricentennial of that then. We are, yes, 2019. And we've got a lot of programs planned for that, and those will focus on women, so I'm excited about that. Um, But yeah, so more men's clothing because there were more men. That makes sense. And um, we also have, along with James Fort, we have three recreated ships. Mm. So we have interpreters, male and female, dressed as male sailors from the yeah. time period. Because okay. we're not going to send a woman up into the rigging in petticoats. No, that's not a good idea. <laughs> be a little dangerous. <laughs> a little risky. Yeah, just a bit. Awesome. So, so even though you do have to work heavily in men's clothes, mm-hmm. I know, because we're Facebook friends and we've known <laughs> each other for years, and I've seen you wear the things, yes. that you've really just done amazing work with early 17th century women's clothing and I've seen pictures and seen you wear some of the things it's just extraordinary um that you've done everything from working clothes all the way up to a formal gown didn't you yeah I mean women's clothing obviously is what I'm way more passionate about (laughs) men's clothing I kind of do because I have to yeah but I get most excited about um researching trying to figure out women's clothing nice so um, let me see. How do I want to wear this? Um, did you? Would you like to break down an average woman's wardrobe in Jamestown in Virginia when they're here, from what you know and, and sure. what research there is? Would you like to explain what they were wearing sure. at this time? And that actually is a easy question to answer because. Um, there's a second shipment, if you will, of mm-hmm. women who come in 16... Mm-hmm. This is 1621, so maybe it's not the second. It might be the third. But anyway, mm-hmm. there's another group of women who come in 1621, and we have a lot of information on these oh, women. Okay. We actually have... They had to have letters of uh, recommendation, basically, to prove mm. they were of good character. Um, but the Virginia Company got together enough money to provide the women with sort of like a suit of clothes okay. to send them over with. Now, this probably, I don't think it was all the clothing in the world that yeah. they had yeah. and that they took because with them. Because if it's one suit. Right, that's, that's not going to last that's too not gonna, long. Especially on a ship. Though. Exactly. So I think this was just like a way to help them get started. You know, okay. We're not going to throw you into the wilderness with mm-hmm. nothing. We're going to provide you with a little bit. So the records show that the women are given um, two smocks. Okay. The smock is the basic linen undergarment mm-hmm. of the 17th century. Okay. Um, you don't see the word shift being used until um, later. When do you see it? That's actually a good question. Do you see it in the 17th century or is it? I I mean, since I look so specifically at the first quarter, basically, yeah. of the 17th century, I know it's not being used in the first quarter of the 17th century. Okay, because I'm thinking about going into the 18th century and back into the 18th century and I'm going, is it like, Early 1700s, maybe? Yeah. But I, I don't really delve too much into... Right. Se- that's probably the other, like, black hole yeah, of, exactly. of costumes, <laughs> like, the 1700s to, like, 1720s. Really, yeah. Kind of, so it's not a lot of people are interested in No. It. So, yeah, okay. you've got smocks, which, again, linen, simple, mm-hmm. basically, you know, T-shaped garment. Yeah. It can have a high neck mm-hmm. with a collar and a, and a little ruffle, or it could be a low neckline as okay. well. 
Then the it says that the women are given one waistcoat, okay. which you might refer to as a jacket okay. now, but a sleeved garment for the upper body, mm-hmm. um, probably with a little bit of a, a flare to the bottom of it. Okay. Um, to accommodate the hips. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people think of the beautiful embroidered examples yes. that survive, which we all love. So probably a similar shape to that, but obviously not not, not so fancy. beautifully embroidered. No. That'd be a very nice gift it, for the company. Here's a beautiful be, yeah. embroidered gilt uh, waistcoat Yeah, for you to wear, <laughs> not pick apart and right. sell. Right. So. Um, and then the next thing they're given um, is a petticoat. Now, that's probably the most interesting article to me in the list Mm -hmm. because I think based on research that has come out in the last mm, 10-15 years that the petticoat is probably much more than just a skirt. Mm. Um, It is probably a skirt with an attached bodice you know like we think of so sleeveless lacing up maybe the front or the sides or the back. Mm -hmm. And it's the bodice of the petticoat that provides um, basically the support to the the woman's um, torso Mm -hmm. or upper body. So by listing that one petticoat, there's there's a lot more going on there than just a skirt. So they're not calling it a kirtle at that point in time? Kirtle has fallen out of fashion pretty much by this time, and it's really been replaced by petticoat. Okay. Um, You definitely see kirtle a lot earlier in the, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, 16th century, but it's it's pretty much falling out of fashion by this time. Yeah. Yeah, because when I was at Costume College a couple years ago, the Mm -hmm. Tudor Taylors, Nina, Michaela, and Jane Malcolm Davies talked about their research in this. And this is something that I wanted to talk to you, Mm too, because you've worked with them. Mm -hmm. You you spent some time with them uh, this winter, actually. Yes, it was this January. Uh, Learning and talking to them and and being able to get really good one-on-one time with them. It was wonderful. And, And they did this really interesting presentation about how they are trying to figure out if boned bodices were used, if it was just fabric, mm-hmm. how that affected the bust shape of the woman. Mm-hmm. And so you looking at the Jamestown records and the inventories and what you see coming in, it would make sense that if they were given a pair of bodies, right, it would have been listed because that's going right. to be an expensive garment. Yeah. It's not going to be And they're, they're pretty you... thorough in the rest of the list. I mean, they've got aprons, shoes, mm-hmm. stockings, hat, hat band, um... What's a hat band? The hat band is just the the decorative. Okay, band so the I was hat. I was like, is this something oh, else, no. <laughs> or, or is it actually well, just what it says? Well, it is? <laughs> of course, confusingly, when it bands can also refer to falling bands or collars, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but in this case, the the listing is hat and band. Okay, yeah, okay. so they're very specific. But they also get gloves, and they get a coif or a cap mm-hmm. and um, a cross cloth, which is worn under the coif. So they're really, it's a very thorough outfit, and nice. so the fact that a separate pair of bodies if not listed mm-hmm. is what to me very strongly indicates that it's the petticoat with the bodies attached that would them. make i totally agree with you yeah. <laughs> it's like they had it's to have pretty something. big it's a pretty yeah. big omission if yeah. if that's not the case um but yeah nina and jane have just done a really great job of not only researching but also kind of um disseminating mm-hmm. the research like you said they presented at costume college they also presented that same um 
talk at the conference that we held at Jamestown Settlement last June. The most competitive conference to get into of all time. We sold out in 21 hours. I remember. (laughs) So they presented this research again, and it was, you know, just really fascinating because, of course, I started out looking at the 16th century, like, probably a lot of people by going to renaissance fairs and yeah, I, I worked right. at the renaissance fair in the queen's court and it was just you're from of, california yes actually. i am from southern california and their renaissance fairs are a little different than the renaissance <laughs> fairs in the midwest yes well it is the original <laughs> but um you know it was just the assumption that you wore a boned corset mm-hmm. under your gown and that the corset you know was a separate garment the way it is in the 18th century and in mm-hmm. the 19th century that well, yeah, because you have the effigy mm-hmm. bodies. You do. And you then do. you have a couple of examples of ones that survive in the V&A. But they're mm-hmm. such pristine, beautiful examples that right. they're not. And they're also, um, you know, there's the there's another pair in Janet Arnold yeah. from about the 1590s. And then obviously the effigy stays are from 1603. Yeah. So those are all extremely, extremely late in the Elizabethan period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're also belonging to very elite women Mm. as well. And the written historical record seems to support this, Mm -hmm. that when you start to see pairs of bodies, as they were referred to, um, with some kind of boning in them, whether it is whalebone or bents, which are bundles of dried grasses, that they're pretty much exclusively in the wardrobes of elite women. Uh But... When you, when you are able to find written references to the poor, because mm-hmm. the poor are often given clothing, um, whether in workhouses or by parishes, that they're still being given petticoats with upper bodies. Okay. Very specifically, um, there's the Ipswich relief for the poor where the the records show, you know, we bought canvas for the upper bodying of the girls' petticoats. Mm-hmm. So it's very specific. So since you did a beautiful segue right there, <laughs> uh, Upper bodies. Canvas, if you've seen a reference, mm-hmm. is this going to be a gummed canvas or is it just going to be a very tightly woven linen? Right. So um, there's what are they what are they doing to get the yeah, support? There's canvas and then buckram um, that are being referenced to the kind of interlinings of upper bodies. Um, and so we know that at least in this time period, canvas comes in many different weights because there are references to smocks and shirts being made out of canvas Um, but then on the other end you know sails and Mm -hmm. tents and things are being made out of canvas so there's you know this other middling kind of weight that's going to be used when it comes to the buckram um, it's probably you know likely that it's being treated with some kind of um, gum or glue that makes it stiff but it's also possible that it's not Um, so that is where I mean things get pretty confusing in this time period again like i said because we don't have so many extant examples we have to rely a lot on the written record and on images um and there are instances and i say this because there are instances where buckram is specifically called out as being paste buckram Mm -hmm. and that seems to occur less often than just buckram the word buckram appearing does that mean it was or was not treated it's kind of hard to say Mm -hmm. um so both of those textiles are being used as interlayers of upper bodies. And when I say upper bodies or even just the word bodies, it's kind of a catch-all term for the upper part of a woman's 
garment. Mm-hmm. Your gown has upper bodies or bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, your petticoat and your kirtle worn underneath the gown have bodies or upper bodies. And if you think about it, bodies becomes bodice. Yes. Exactly. So oh, you were saying that. I was like, <laughs> and there's the connection. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why, you know, I'll talk about bodies or a pair of bodies and mm-hmm. I, I should be a little more specific because I could be talking about the pair of bodies of a gown. Mm-hmm. It's just catch all term for the upper part. So when you made this bodied petticoat, mm-hmm. is that the right way to? Sure, yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's, it's English in the 17th century. I'll yeah. just spell it however I want exactly. and just try and pronounce exactly. it so it makes sense. Um, did you use a buckram or did you use a canvas? And the, what did you, what were your results sure, with that? Sure. The very, very first petticoat I made with upper bodies, I only used canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got really great support. I was really mm-hmm. happy with the shape that it gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so there's no boning, not even along the lacing edges wow. of it. Um, and one of the ways that you can help get kind of a smooth shape, even without boning, is by putting the eyelets very, very close to the edge of the garment. Okay. And also putting the eyelets themselves pretty close together. And you so see that in images. You, you see do. that in portraiture. The, you do. The eyelets are really small. They are. And that just helps distribute the tension. Mm-hmm. Um, much better than if mm. you set them back even a quarter inch away wow. from the edge. So I, I try to put them as close as I can. Um, but I was pretty happy with it. Now, of course, coming from a background as many of us have with boning, I was looking at the wrinkles and just like ah! dying inside. <laughs> exactly. And and I, I shared this in a, in a group on Facebook that has some really knowledgeable members like the Tudor Taylor. They're part mm-hmm. of that group and other people who are really um, at the cutting edge of, of this research and they're like, wrinkles are fine. Mm-hmm. You see wrinkles in the period. It's mm-hmm. okay. But, you know, I... <laughs> it's, a, well, it's a pursuit of perfection and, and I think, and I don't know, obviously my background with sewing is different than, than other people's because I was never taught, a, well, my grandmother tried to teach me to sew as a child <laughs> and I was like, I'm too busy whatever. And, and I, so I got into it at a much later date. Um, and, and so my views on wrinkles are more like, well, you see them a lot in history, (laughs) but it's, it's, I think there's like this pursuit of perfection and wrinkles equals imperfect Mm, mm. for, for modern sewers. Mm -hmm. And if, especially Mm -hmm. if you're trained by your grandmother who was taught in high school and has been sewing her whole life and wrinkles are, are the enemy. But you know, you're right. When you look at it, one, you can't escape the wrinkles no. if you don't have the boning. But right. then you, when you start looking, going, oh, there's a wrinkle here or there's a wrinkle there, you go, ooh, <laughs> that's messy. Mm-hmm. Like, she, that, do, that doesn't fit. Right. So, right. So you're able to overcome the... I, I was. Mm-hmm. I was. Um, and so I was, I was pleased with those and um, found them very comfortable to wear. And the interpreters at Jamestown Settlement did too because I started making them... Um, at work and they were very happy to not have (laughs) fully boned bodices anymore because we were boning our bodices with metal boning Mm, Um, so that meant a fully boned bodice in metal you know weighing like 10 pounds or whatever yeah in virginia so you're encased in metal and it's really hot awful yeah Yeah. so they loved the petticoats with upper bodies they thought that was great and then we had um, our conference mm-hmm. with the Tudor Taylor. And I got to listen to that same lecture that you mm-hmm. did, um, cleverly called No Bones About It, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. And Nina talked about how they were looking at portraits and seeing this much softer mm-hmm. line. 
still supported, still conical, but softer. And so they, you know, they were looking at the portraits and looking at the written record and seeing the absence of, mm-hmm. of boning, but seeing the presence of buckram and um, canvas. So they started using, um, you know, what would have been called in the period paste buckram, um, which is linen fabric that has been treated with some kind of gum or glue substance to help make it a little stiffer. Mm. And I was so inspired by this research that they shared with us that, of course, I wanted to do it myself. Yeah. Um, and I looked online for sources of, of the kind of buckram that they were using. So it's not modern millinery buckram. Yeah. You wouldn't want to use that. Oh, man, that's always such a struggle. Yeah, so we were like, you know, how are we going to find this? They had found a source for it, Mm -hmm. and I had found a source which seemed to be very similar, if not the same, but they were UK-based. And because of that and because of customs and shipping and everything, I was a little reluctant to Mm -hmm. place an order that way. So I thought, well, I'll just make my own buckram. <laughs> It'll be easy. And, and I did. And actually, it actually yeah. is really easy. Um, I believe um, Burnley and Trowbridge have a, um, a video tutorial online yeah, about making it. And so I, instead of using gum tragacanth, which we mm-hmm. know was used in the 18th century, I went ahead and used rabbit hide glue mm. um, to stiffen it. So again, it's just another... Is there a reason know, why delightful. you did rabbit hide glue instead of gum tragacanth? Um, it was going to be stiffer than okay. the gum tragacanth. Yeah. So in talking with um, my husband, that was kind of the conclusion that we came to to give that a shot. Because I had handled examples of the buckram mm-hmm. he had made with the gum tragacanth. Mm-hmm. And comparing it to what Jane and Nina had brought with them, it okay. wasn't going to be stiff like what stiff they had. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you need really, really stiff buckram. Yeah, yeah. But but you don't want it as stiff as millinery buckram. Like, true yeah. millinery buckram is going to be really, really stiff. Well, like, I, would, I don't even know what gums they use in millinery buckram. Because if you if you get it wet, yeah. it gets sticky. Right. And, and you that can is a glue concern. it to all the things. <laughs> right. And that is a concern that people brought up to me when I shared what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I think, and now it's kind of hard because... I'm a person who obviously sweats when I get hot Mm -hmm. because I'm a functioning human being and I'm not going to (laughs) die and that's good. Um, But I don't, I tend to sweat only, this is going to sound so personal. I I really only sweat from my armpits. I'm Mm -hmm. not one of those people who gets like sweaty all over. Yeah, yeah. So people were concerned like, well, what happens if I do sweat through, obviously you'd have to sweat entirely through your smock, entirely through the lining to get to the buckram. Is it going to get soft and crumpled? Well, I wore my now paste buckram stiffened mm-hmm. bodies in early September in Virginia, which is still hot, hot and humid. And I wore them all day. Um, and I only found that they just molded better to my body. I didn't find sense. them breaking down. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, when we make a garment, we want it to last forever. Yeah. Whereas because you don't want to have to go exactly, through the process again. Exactly. Because you're doing it yourself. Yes. You're not but when you look at it. the historical record, even Queen Elizabeth, you see to make new upper bodies for my damask kirtle or mm. the new upper bodying of my scarlet petticoat. So these things are being replaced, whether because they're wearing out or because you're getting bigger or smaller yeah. and things. 
But like you said, because we have to make it ourselves, because we, there isn't the tailor down the street. Yes, the eyelets. At um, least you're not boning. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, at <laughs> you least you're not boning. It. Bone no, that would oh, be horrible. God, that'd be awful. But the eyelets are, are bad enough because going mm-hmm. through the pace buckram is pretty tough. Yeah. Um, it's not fun. It's not impossible, but it's not fun. Did you have one lacing point or two? Um, just one. Just I've been doing them down the center front mm-hmm. because um, I, it's, it's easy. <laughs> do do you take out inches to give compression, or yes. or do you try just to pattern it exactly to your measurement? I do take inches out because I want the bust to be no, which okay. is interesting. Um, but oh, sorry, you can no, that's okay. That's okay. I was like, wait, did you do this? <laughs> yeah, so I take inches out so that I get compression and support. Mm-hmm. However, because these don't have tabs, mm-hmm. and because it's not the ideal of the period, mm-hmm. this is not a garment that will cinch you in. Yeah, no. If you take out enough to cinch you in a lot in the waist, you are going to be very uncomfortable because <laughs> there are no fingers, or no tabs mm-hmm. that are going to distribute the tension around your waist. Yeah. So you will be very You'll uncom- have creases and, in yeah. your waist. And I say this know. from experience. Because <laughs> <laughs> vanity um, kicks Because vanity. Um, <laughs> where, you know, I still wanted the look yeah. I was getting with a corset before, but it is very comfortable. And when you look at images of you know common women obviously elite women are sort of um unto themselves but if you look at common women you just don't see that kind of that kind of cinching and going on because it's not desired and it's not really practical in those Mm -hmm. instances um but yes i do i don't give the same kind of gap that i do with um like 18th century stays Mm -hmm. where i have at least a few inches or 19th century corsets um and that is based on looking at, at some images. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's an image of a, an elite woman, but Elizabeth Vernon, who is scandalously in her <laughs> bodies and petticoat, but it's a gorgeous portrait. And is that the one where it's it's painted? It's a pink. Yeah, yeah. And her hair is yes, down. Yes, her hair is down. And there's a lot of sheer fabric. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's a, a nice one. It's very beautiful. But her, there's... um. It, you can see there's lacing down the front. There's no gap. Obviously, you know, I guess you could argue maybe there's lacing in the back, but mm-hmm. the effigy bodies lace up the front. Only. Only. Mm-hmm. Um, the other Jane Arnold, Janet Arnold ones lace up the back only, and mm. it has a buskin front. But I believe on the Queen Elizabeth effigy, um, when they undressed her, <laughs> there was no gap in there either. Okay. Um, which worried me at first because I feel like a gap is a little more comfortable and more adjustable. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Right. But also since it's not as snug mm-hmm. and there's not as much you know, compression going on, it, I'm actually perfectly comfortable without having a, a big gap. So that hasn't proven to be a problem at all. Awesome. awesome. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So... And, and I think also, too, if you have a big gap in front mm-hmm. and you're wearing a kirtle or a gown over that petticoat, mm-hmm. then there's going to be that kind of, that break. And it yeah. might ruin the, the sort of smooth line. But I don't, I don't, that's just kind of a guess. So since you brought up gowns, mm-hmm. um, I was wondering if you could, because we've talked about waistcoats and we see right. women with doublets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are references to gowns. And I know you just finished mounting a mannequin. Who has, you said two gowns <laughs> Yeah, on. I was like, she's got a gown and, on her gown. <laughs> and of course, my, my mind just went, right. Um, little brain explosions <laughs> here. So, would you be so kind as to break 
down what a gown was in this time period Mm -hmm. versus what a lot of people see gowns as. And and I'm speaking from my own here. My own mental lexicon is, you know, a gown is like this, but... Mm -hmm. And in this time period, they seem to be a little bit more different and unique and maybe not something that, like, would every woman have one? Or did most women wear, you know, their petticoats with waistcoats Mm -hmm. or doublets or Mm -hmm. could you? Yeah, so the gown is, (laughs) again, kind of one of those good catch-all terms like bodies Mm -hmm. um, because men also wear gowns and they are called just gowns. Um, I know. <laughs> Makes inventory reading. It Loads does. Of it like. does. So, so when a man is saying, I leave this gown to my wife, is it his gown? Is it a female gown? Yeah, it can be, it can be real fun um, in the 16th and early 17th century um, because a lot of the lexicon is vague sometimes mm-hmm. and re- re- can refer to garments of both sexes. So we've got male gowns, which are long, loose, um, and men of all classes can wear these, okay. but if you're a more common person, it's probably going to be like a Sunday or holiday best kind of thing. Okay. Um, it could be lined in fur for warmth as well, and you're going to wear it over the rest of your clothes. So if you are a man wearing a gown, you'll get dressed in your doublet and your breeches, and then the gown will go over that okay. as sort of an outer garment, but that doesn't mean it's only being worn out of doors you could also wear indoors and remember too we're dealing with little ice age temperatures Mm -hmm. um so that extra layer especially if it's lined in fur is going to be really nice and cozy yeah because (laughs) the insides not of your home is not going to be much warmer than the outside no probably not very nice so so we've got male gowns and gowns also end up being associated with um, learned professions like doctors mm. and lawyers, kind of, you know, the way we think today, judges wear gowns, yeah. um, those sorts of things. So there's that association as well with male gowns. Mm-hmm. Now, women, maybe even more confusingly, <laughs> have different styles of gowns. Um, and if you look, take a look through Queen Elizabeth's wardrobes, um, often they're they're kind of said what type of gown is being worn, which can be helpful sometimes. So you've got French gowns and gowns in the Spanish style and um, Dutch gowns and night gowns and different things like that. Um, so there's different styles. So, you know, there's a loose style of gown, like what men are wearing, mm-hmm. um, that can be worn over your petticoat and or curdle. And <laughs> I hate to have to say that, but unfortunately, there isn't this sort of um, clear cut um, order of operations mm-hmm. when it comes to getting dressed in this time period, because you may wear your curdle, um, excuse me, you may wear your petticoat with stiffened upper bodies and then a curdle on top of that. And the curdle will be of a finer fabric that's okay. meant to kind of be shown off. Or as curdles start to kind of you know, become less fashionable towards the end of the century. Maybe you're wearing just your petticoat with the gown over it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can be that kind of loose flowing gown, which, you know, you can have a girdle, Mm -hmm. um, which is the the period term for like a belt or a sash that can be used to kind of draw in the waist there. And those types of gowns, 
you also see being worn on common women Mm -hmm. as well. Again, probably for holiday, Sunday best type wear. Um, And they'd be made out of a a good, you know, stout woolen fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, Freeze and russet come up a lot. Those are kind of um, really nice, warm, woolly fabrics Mm -hmm. um, for common people. But then, of course, as you go up the scale, you can get much, much finer fabrics. Silks. Yeah, exactly. And velvet and things. And then there are also, of course, gowns with a fitted bodies. (laughs) Because that's not confusing. No, because it's not confusing at all. So the gowns are both loose and flowing, and they're also tight and fitted. They're just gowns. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful. So that's why, when talking about this outfit that I recently mounted, it is a, a fitted gown with a with a high bodies, or what you might think of as a doublet, where it comes up to the neck, it has a standing collar, and it buttons down the front. <laughs> and then okay. the loose gown over that on okay. top. As just wow. fashion. So your gown on top of your gown. <laughs> it's just, thank you, history, for making this so clear. I know, it's wonderful. So logically laid well, out. And, and like, so I mentioned the fabric russet. Russet mm-hmm. is also a color. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so is it, when you see russet, is it talking about the fabric or the color or both? And we don't, all of the above. No, all of them. Or yeah. neither. Or neither, yeah. yeah. So it's... it's <laughs> You know, it's a fascinating and frustrating time period to mm. study because, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of mystery. But it's one of those things like watching you make things from this time period. You've done such a nice job that they don't look like costumes. Mm. I feel like the challenge with the further back in mm. history you go, mm-hmm. the more costumey things start to get. And it's not necessarily due to lack of skill or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's, it's lack of availability to right. materials yeah. or being able to look at an image and do a, a really good job of bringing it back to life, mm-hmm. you know, or you really want to make it out of a silk damask, but you cannot <laughs> find the right size, yes. scale, material, yeah. things like that. And so what I've always really admired about your 17th century work is the fact that you really look like you've been able to create clothing, Mm. not just costumes, Mm. but clothing. Now, for Costume College last year, Mm -hmm. you made yourself a... A gown. Gown. (laughs) (laughs) The listeners did not see my face of, that was a gown, right? Right, right, yeah. Um, and, And you... You looked like you walked out of a portrait. It was crazy. thank you. Um, it was wonderful. Um, and that was an upper class, an aristocratic woman's That gown. was. That was, you know, something that I never would get the chance to make a Jamestown. <laughs> um, and I specifically wanted to do a gown from the year 1616 mm-hmm. um, because it was 2016 and, yeah. and why not? And it's so funny because... You know, like like you said, 17th century is kind of the forgotten century. Yeah. And there's a ton of change that happens in that hundred years. And picking 1616 specifically allowed me to pinpoint the changes that happen even from 1610 to 1616. Well, can you give me some examples sure. of what those are? So at the beginning of the century, um, so when Queen Elizabeth dies in 1603, the silhouette is to have a very, very elongated torso. Mm-hmm. And the wheel farthingale, or the drum-shaped farthingale, is still in fashion, Mm. um, but just kind of barely. And the hair is pretty vertical, Mm. emphasis on the vertical at this point. 
when you pass 1610, things start to soften and shorten <laughs> and, and kind of deflate a little bit. We so, can only go out so Yes, big. you can you only get so extreme. Right, and it really had, I think, the, the silhouette by the end of Elizabeth's reign was so artificial. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the best word for it. I mean, you had these huge sleeves. You had this bizarre elongated torso and this strange skirt, these really weird proportions. But mm-hmm. by 1616, things have gotten so much, you know, we've gone back to, to a bit more natural. So for the 1616 gown, the... The waistline has started to rise. Okay. And by 1620, it'll be, it's starting to get pretty high. I mean, yeah. the the apex is probably more towards the 30s. Mm-hmm. So from the 20s to the 30s, it's not quite, you know, empire-waisted, but it's it's pretty up there. It, 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 I think if I was to describe it, it, it would be um, potato <laughs> Yeah, shaped. it's not flattering. No. <laughs> Which I think is why people don't do the 20s and 30s. It's, it's kind of one of those things where you almost want to do it because it is it's so, so unflattering. Yeah. You're like, I can walk around and I look like a big yeah, potato and what are you guys going to do about it? It's pretty strange. But luckily, 1616, it hasn't quite gotten there. It's mm-hmm. higher than it was, but it sits pretty natural. It's okay. pretty, you know, it's relatively at the natural waist, which is nice. The fun thing about this kind of teens period if you will mm-hmm. late teens period is that the neckline gets super low yeah it does super i was wanting to ask low. you how you dealt <laughs> of with of course that. you would um so i made a special pair of bodies for this okay that had a very low neckline were were you secured or were you a little uh, bit footloose and fancy i was a little out there okay. um and the funny thing is there are portraits of respectable, well, mm-hmm. respectable elite titled women with nip slip, nip slip, mm-hmm. more than nip slip, like <laughs> neckline under the bosoms, pretty much. Um, and you, you definitely also see it in, in woodcuts as well. I guess that works if you're a certain size, but there are, I there think are so. some yeah. women that... Yeah. cannot get away with it. <laughs> well, and that was the thing, looking at these portraits from this time period... You would see this expanse of décolletage, <laughs> and I'm wondering, does she actually have? I know. Well, land. and that's really what it was. <laughs> However, it was just a swath of white, mm-hmm. so there wasn't any. The artist did not put in any kind of shading to suggest that she had breasts. Mm-hmm. It was just flat white yeah. which made me wonder okay are they shoving the bosoms and flattening them down Ow. or is it some kind of modesty mm-hmm. thing like did the victorians go back in and paint over well, the nipples to do exactly like that so it, it was this strange kind of how am i going to interpret this mm-hmm. so i knew because i was going out in public and mm-hmm. i was not going to have exposed bosoms because <laughs> that's just not me and it sounds very uncomfortable and cold. And cold. <laughs> so I took it as low as I could go without being indecent, basically. Which okay. you, it was still very it low. It was very low. And I don't think I was ever nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was, I mean, the gown was secure mm-hmm. and wasn't going anywhere. So the neckline is, is not only very low, but also very wide. Yeah. Um, it's the, the arm side is still on the shoulder. But the neckline is, is quite wide. So I definitely had to build the pair of bodies first to kind of figure out, you know, mm-hmm. how things were going to lay. Um, and another thing, too, was, um, you know, figuring out all the little 
the little hidden details as well. So the sleeves mm-hmm. are kind of this weird, not quite three quarters length. Okay. They definitely don't hit the actual wrist bone. Okay. They're they're shorter than that, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they're full three quarters. They're like right. somewhere. Yeah, in the space like between seven, your eight? wrist. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're this weird like it looks like you made a boo boo, and your sleeve is too short. <laughs> you cut your sleeves wrong. Right. Exactly. So I'm like, oh great, everybody's gonna think I just messed it up. But no, that's what you see again mm-hmm. and again in these elite portraits is, um, the slightly shorter sleeve and then a nice big lace cuff. And luckily, the Tudor tailor, um sells beautiful laces they do that are made in nottingham by a company that's been in business for for hundreds of years and they're like wonderful reproduction patterns of um lace so i had the perfect lace to work with which was very exciting because that can be a hard thing i think for a lot of people to find i think lace is to me lace is one of the biggest challenges Mm -hmm. of historic Mm -hmm. costuming because Mm -hmm. What we have available today is so different mm-hmm. than what was available. And trying to find something that works, because you'll never, like the Tudor Taylors and being able to, mm-hmm. that's amazing yeah. that you've been able to get something that perfect. Right. But for like 18th century and a lot of the 19th century, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, they don't make it that way no. anymore. They don't think about different widths or how it's designed. It's always just, you know, Victorian roses everywhere, right. and it's like, ugh. <laughs> and obviously, you know, polyester. And, yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. and scratchy and itchy and mm-hmm. not soft and hard right. to work with. And... So I was really, you know, that was just so wonderful because the lace is not just on the cuffs, it's also on whatever kind of neckwear yes. the woman's wearing, whether it's a ruff or I went with the rubato. So it has a, it's kind of a, I don't know. D shape, like if you turned a the, D on its, its side, it's like a flat roof, right? Yeah, and then you had the yeah. wire understructure, yeah. And so that was made back when I was looking at um, Pocahontas's portrait, and that's mm-hmm. another thing because she went to England in 16, um, 16. and so I wanted to kind of honor that mm-hmm. as well by choosing that year. Um, so I used the same rubato um, collar that I had made for that. So that has lace all around it. Mm-hmm. And then there's almost always lace around the neckline of the gown. Mm-hmm. Now that was a lot a lot of trouble for my brain because I couldn't figure out where the lace was coming from in terms of, is it like a tucker in the 18th century? Yeah. However, there were portraits that suggested that the lace could have been on the edge of her smock mm. and was folded over the bodice. Oh. So I went with lace as tucker okay. because it was easy. Yeah. Did you like that result? I did like it. Okay. And I think a lot of portraits support that as well because it's just so perfectly arranged mm-hmm. on the bodice that that seems to make the most sense. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I can, you know, pinpoint a handful of portraits that show the lace on the smock. Mm-hmm coming out over Mm -hmm. so I think it could be either okay honestly um but just as a side note I mean one of the things that struck me most about Nina's class Mm -hmm. talking about you know figuring out boning or no boning is the willingness to say this is the best I can do right now with the research I have I could be wrong in 10 years but this is what I've got right now and I'm going with it I've always respected that and and I believe the same thing I think 
you know, with the research that you're doing and what you're making, what they're doing, 18th century, 19th mm-hmm. century, you know, the closer you get to the modern era, the more hard evidence there is, right. the more, the more right. extant garment survives. But when you're dealing with the past it, and how new dress history is, really, truly, as a field of study, mm-hmm. it's like we're using books that are 60 years old and right. they're still considered, right. you know, the end-all, be-all. I know. For a very good reason. But, yeah. but yeah. the fact of the matter is, is that... You know, when you go to a history class in college today, like a normal history class, mm-hmm. you're not usually going to be referencing no. 60-year-old history books. No, you're my be... professor would not allow me to use anything older than like 20 years. <laughs> oh, it's like, this is impossible. I, like, I can't really do that. <laughs> um, and it is like, you know, the information changes. Mm-hmm. We get new information yeah. every day. Um, and being able to admit that and be secure in the work. Yeah. I always think that I have so much more respect mm. You know, for mm-hmm. for those individuals, you can stand up and say that. Mm-hmm. And it's sure. definitely, I still struggle with it because I want to be right. You yeah. know, and we all do. Of course, of course. So to say I'm doing this and I may be wrong in the future mm-hmm. can be hard, but mm-hmm. I've learned from you know working in this time period that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. We just have to say this is the best we can do. Mm-hmm. And it looks fabulous. Well, when thank you. Do you. I I had a lot of fun wearing that gown. Mm-hmm. Um, I still need to do like a good photo shoot with it because mm-hmm. costume college isn't necessarily no. the best place to get good pictures yeah and it was my unfortunately as many of us often experience it was my first time even putting the finished gown on <laughs> oh and then so you're just not even used to yeah so i'm like and... i'm finding out all the things that i need to fix and like yeah. this is how but because that neckline is so wide like i said mm-hmm. i could barely move my arms. you just had to hold them like yeah. a lady which it's... you know a woman wearing that gown you know she would wouldn't not be raising, really have been expected to know no. Doing Muppet arms in no. the air. <laughs> no, but but it is it is a pretty princess gown, mm-hmm. and I don't have a lot of those, so oh, that's that awesome. fun. So I, I wanted to ask you about one more thing when it comes to 17th century dress, and it's something that you've presented uh, papers about, and you've done a lot of amazing academic research about. Um, and are you going to be publishing? I am. I, I know. I feel so bad because I've been working on it off and on mm-hmm. for two years to like actually get it published in, to the publishing stage. Yeah. Um, if you've never tried to publish a paper in an academic <laughs> journal, uh, it's a lot of work. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and um, I work full time and like, you know, yeah, so, tricky. but, but no. ear irons, <laughs> but yes, ear irons. So this is a paper that I will publish as soon as I get all my images together. And that's what I'm working on right now. That works. So, so you've done a lot of research. I feel like we went down the yeah, I'm paper. sorry. It's okay because you and I were digressing. It's like, <laughs> I know. Oh, paper publishing. Papers but publishing. you did this research on ear irons. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to say the name in Dutch <laughs> because I will just completely okay. butcher it. Okay. And there will probably be someone who's from the Netherlands. So I know, and like, I'm scared. <laughs> Abby, you're saying it wrong. No. So, and I'm like, I don't even, I, I'll sweetify it. There like, you it'll go. come out yeah. with like sweeter sounding, so it'll be really weird. But you've done a lot of research on ear irons, yeah. and in Dutch, they are called the. So what I've gathered <laughs> from looking at Dutch pronunciation online and asking people who speak Dutch, it's pronounced orizer. Because that's how it's spelled. It is. Yeah, that's how yeah, it's spelled. It's not, ladies and gentlemen listening. It's. It's not scary. It's actually not scary. <laughs> it looks terrifying. It does look really scary, but no, it's just orizer. Orizer. Mm-hmm. That sounds mm-hmm. very noble. And it literally translates to ear iron, which ear is iron. why in English we usually just call them ear mm-hmm. irons. Can you explain what they are? <laughs> I can. So mm-hmm. the best way for me to describe it is if you think back 
to those headphones mm-hmm. that came up and around your ears and mm-hmm. around the back of your head, not on top of your head, mm-hmm. back of your head. That's where they were cool back in yeah. the late 90s, right? Early 2000s. I had those. Yeah, I did too. I had those. So they look sort of like that, where it's a piece of metal that wraps around the back of your head, comes up over your ears, and then extends pretty much to like your jaw, like the bottom mm-hmm. of your cheekbone. And it's the wackiest thing in the world when we think about it because they're mm-hmm. they are so Dutch mm-hmm. and you just never see them out here, even though they're still worn today mm-hmm. um, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. In folk dress. Yes, yeah. yes. And they come in all shapes and sizes now. Mm-hmm. But um, in the time period that I um, have been researching, they're pretty, um, they're still pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Um, Not just Dutch then. They are across the board. Right, so not just Dutch. Yeah, I know. Well, and to make it even more confusing, um, I guess I should be calling them the low countries in the 16th century. I mean, it's... And who's ruling the area, and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of war going on. So I guess if you think of the Netherlands... Today. Today. That region. That region is where orizers are worn. So not just Holland. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. So I'll try to be a little more careful with the terminology. But yeah, Netherlands. Okay. Is, is where they're being worn. So these are worn after you dress your hair. Mm-hmm. Um, usually in, um, it can be plated um, or, you know, you get kind of two pigtails mm-hmm. that then get essentially laced to yeah. your head in a crown. Mm-hmm. And then the orizer goes on top of that. Mm-hmm. And now you have a sturdy base on which to secure the coifs or the caps that you're going to wear. And I okay. call them coifs because that's what the English are calling them. Okay. Obviously, you could call them a coif if you're going to be all <laughs> French. But since we're uh, 17th century Englishmen, we would not do the French pronunciation. No. Oh, my God. Um, and that's a base for coifs and also veils mm. so that you can pin it to those points that are on your cheekbone. And it helps the cap stay in place if they have heart-shaped brims on them, okay. it provides an anchor so that it can flare out around okay. your face, you know, like the dinosaur in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Like, Triceratops? No, the, the other the one. Venom. The yeah, one that killed that human. One. Yeah, <laughs> that one. So you've got all this crazy stuff on your head, but it's anchored to the orizer that's underneath. Okay. Because yeah. I was wondering about them and going, well, okay, they're supposed to help anchor the cat. Mm-hmm. But I know from my experience (laughs) that you don't necessarily need one of those to anchor said cat. (laughs) So what does it really, how does it anchor the cat? But explain, it's more to really help giving the brim shape. It does, Around the face and giving it the structure. Yeah, because it keeps keeps the the ends of the brim Mm -hmm. really anchored right at your cheeks. Mm -hmm. So it's not... It's not going anywhere. Yeah, it's super secure. <laughs> yeah. And you had one reproduced. I did. Mm-hmm. So this whole crazy ear iron tangent came about because... <laughs> the ear iron rabbit hole. Yeah, because, well, for one, the topic of ear irons was actually getting really popular among 16th and early 17th century living history folks. Okay. Um, it was kind of the new cool thing, mm-hmm. the way that black bonnets are among Revolutionary War people. Yeah. It's like, there are trends in reenacting the way there are trends in everything oh, else. Totally are. <laughs> so this was kind of becoming a trend, and I had the opportunity to present at a conference at Colonial Williamsburg, and my boss pulled out this piece of paper from his files and said, well, what do you think of this? And it was a photocopy 
from a book by um, Ivor Null Hume, who, who mm-hmm. was recently passed away. He was a, a brilliant archaeologist who worked here in Virginia, although he's British. Mm-hmm. And it was a drawing of an ear iron on a woman's head. And I was like, oh, okay, these are the things that people have been talking about online. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the the photocopy from Noel Hume's book was talking about an ear iron that was actually found in Virginia. Mm. And it was from the time period that I, I'm studying, the, awesome. the first quarter of the 17th century. And, you know... We've been talking a lot about the Netherlands. This is very, very much a Netherlands thing. Trend, yeah. So why is there one in Virginia? Yeah, that, that was... <laughs> when I was thinking about your research, I was going, what is the connection yeah. between... Because when you... I mean, even the fact that they're called... Oh, Orizers. Orizers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, we're still using even like a Dutch name to describe exactly. them. They're so integral to Dutch folk dress. They and, are. And... But you work in a Virginia museum, and you recreated one. And I still one had one, yeah. And I wanted to know where right. that connection was. Well, unfortunately, there's no like really direct documented mm-hmm. link because we have very little information about this group of people who came over mm-hmm. who lived at the site where this was excavated. So okay. this was a group of people who specifically came to work on a plantation called Martin's Hundred. Okay. And that's where this was excavated. It's just down the river from us. Um we don't know we we know some of their names because unfortunately um they were all killed in 1622 um because the powhatans decided we've had enough of these Mm -hmm. english people taking over our land and betraying us and going back on treaties and so they had this brilliant organized attack um but most of the people of martin's hundred were were killed and so this woman was found with the ear iron still on her head but even though we don't know who she is, mm-hmm. what her name was, um, there were many tens of thousands of um, Dutch people, people from the Netherlands, mm-hmm. who immigrated to England during the 16th century. Mm-hmm. So it's estimated that about 50,000 of them came during Elizabeth's reign alone, wow. probably around the 1560s. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of war going on um, mm-hmm. because the Netherlands were being ruled by the Spanish and the mm-hmm. Spanish were Catholic. And, you know, there's a lot of Protestants in the Netherlands. Yeah. And so England, who is also Protestant, was like, mm-hmm. come on over here. We'd be hey, happy to take you. Buddy. And you know a whole lot about weaving wool. And we, Guess what? We have <laughs> we've got a lot of wool here <laughs> in England. So maybe you can help us out. So they were like, the Netherlands and the England and England have this really, really amicable relationship. Mm-hmm. So there are, have actually been ear irons found in London. Excellent. Um, not enough to say that English women were like, yeah, let's, you know, mm-hmm. I'll wear these. But to say that English people would at least have been familiar with seeing these, um, these people from the Netherlands wearing them. So maybe one of the people who then went to America was one of these people from the Netherlands originally. So they mm-hmm. kind of went Netherlands, England, Virginia. Yeah. So I think that's probably the strongest mm-hmm. theory mm-hmm. Um, because there were French people. So it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. But to me, what was so, you know, special about this really strange object <laughs> was the fact that, you know, I've said multiple times throughout this that 
we don't have a lot of extant mm-hmm. um, things to go off of, specifically from Jamestown yeah. in terms of clothing, because clothing just doesn't survive in the ground no, archaeologically. We've got metal buttons and, you know, aglets and hooks and eyes, mm-hmm. but we don't have any really clothing that survives. No, especially this region. It's yeah. not well suited. No. Because there's a couple shipwrecks in Sweden that a right. bunch of 17th yes. century clothes Which survives. Is really exciting. That's because the environment is much better right. suited. Right, But even when you compare what we do have mm-hmm. over in Europe and England is still a fraction of it what, is. you know, when yeah. compared again to like the 18th century. Yeah. So to know that this was something that was actually worn by a woman who lived during this time period that I'm studying was so exciting. In Virginia. In Virginia, you know, just a few miles away Mm -hmm. from Jamestown. So not only did I write the paper or a paper (laughs) on this, but I worked with Ashlyn Lewis, who Mm -hmm. is now journeyman blacksmith um, Mm -hmm. at Colonial Williamsburg, to have her reproduce the original. So I studied the original, which is in the collections of Colonial Williamsburg now, took pictures and measurements and gave that to Ashlyn and kind of you know, told her what I was going for. And she made it up for me out mm-hmm. of iron, just like the original, mm-hmm. to almost exactly the original measurements. Wow. Um, we altered, well, we, Ashlyn altered the length of the pieces that come down to my cheeks. Mm-hmm. Um, she shortened them. Why would she? Um, why did she? Do that? They were coming a little too far down okay, in their so, original state. So just your your skull shape, your, right? So your, my head was just a small. little smaller than hers, which is interesting because they, Ivor Noel Hume, in studying her skeleton, thought that she was already had a small head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out, you know, mine at least in its length was different mm-hmm. from hers. So it's pretty much the same as the original, just that small um, adaptation and. It was just really great to work with Ashlyn to have somebody who understood historic blacksmithing as opposed to, you know, just a modern blacksmith. Mm -hmm. Um, She knew what it meant to look at an original object Mm -hmm. and then recreate it. And to learn something not only from looking at it and studying it, but to learn through the making and the recreation of it. Mm -hmm. And so she did that aspect for me. And then I made a coif to go over it, one mm-hmm. that specifically had a heart-shaped brim because I wanted to, to see how see that how all interacted. So I was able to put the components together by actually wearing the ear iron myself mm-hmm. and um, and then putting the, the cap on top of it and pinning it. Um, now, not only was this woman found with the ear iron, but she was also found with two brass pins. Oh. So you see in portraits, pins... Um, in in the caps where they're yes. being pinned to the ear irons, and today in certain parts of the Netherlands, women still are Pin. pinning the caps to the orizers. Did you get pins from the Netherlands then, or did you have? I didn't. No, I just have normal straight pins. Okay, just the, yeah. um, which show up, which I think is pretty much what's being used in the period. Mm-hmm. The fancy yeah. decorative ones seem to be very much a 18th, 19th century edition. Okay. Um, so, what did you <clears throat> what did you learn when you wore the ear iron? What, what, what was that <laughs> right, like? right. My I biggest mean, question, of course, is did it give you a headache? Exactly. Like, well, but just the whole experience of yeah. The, the um, you know, I mentioned the headphones in the beginning. It mm-hmm. was very much like wearing that style of headphone. Okay. Um, and I have since interpreted full days wearing it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't bother me at all. I also um, I also wear glasses, mm-hmm. so having something on my head, um. Mm-hmm. 
It doesn't bother me to begin with. Okay. I don't really think about it. But it didn't it didn't cause any kind of tension or pressure mm-hmm. on my head to the point where it was uncomfortable. And the weight of the iron wasn't too heavy. It wasn't. It's actually quite lightweight, even okay. though it is completely iron. Mm-hmm. Now, other surviving examples, there are tons of them in the Netherlands, even mm-hmm. 16th century examples. Yeah. Um, a lot of those are brass okay. as well. Okay. So to wear a brass one um, would be different than an iron one. Also, the Virginia example is... Um, a little thicker and stockier than mm-hmm. some of the others. A little bit more coarse. It is. Now, there are equally um, heavy examples in the Netherlands, so it's by no means an aberration, mm-hmm. but um, it's just on the heavier side of, okay. of what seems to be out there. And it wasn't a problem? No, it really wasn't. Did it change uh, how you carried your, your head and your <laughs> neck? Like, did, because, you know, when you dress your hair in 18th century right. and it's very tall, like, what I learned is that it actually really helps promote mm. really good deportment. You can't just mm-hmm. be like, oh my gosh. Right. Like you really have to be careful how you move mm-hmm. your shoulders, your neck, your your head. Did the ear irons change how you interacted with the world around you once mm. you put them on? Mm. I don't think it made a huge impact okay. on me actually. And I think it's because everything is still so close to the mm-hmm. head. Yeah. There isn't any height. Um, in this style. So the the caps are all very close fitting mm. to the head. Um, the only place where it stands out is the, the brim around the face, really. Um, so if anything, that was probably the most noticeable thing yeah. was that I had this, you know, heart shaped brim around my face, but the ear iron itself mm-hmm. just kind of was there. Yeah. And it didn't bother me. Yeah. I think if I, there's, there are also styles where women will wear a cap and then a veil on top of that. And Mm -hmm. it's the veil that gets pinned um, because the veil then has a heart shaped um, front to it. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm sure would be really different. And I do have um, plans, well plans, but also (laughs) friends who have done that and have done really excellent job, Um, Jennifer and Margaret. And it, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're sort of my uh, Netherlandish like, buddies nice. and they really love the clothing of the low countries during this period so we've we've gotten really excited sharing all our finds awesome. um with each other but awesome. yeah so it's Very just cool. a quirky little piece of the 17th century to make it even that more more interesting, <laughs> interesting than it already explore. is yeah well this is great thank you so much samantha oh thank you for uh, having for me. joining me again this is awesome. I love listening to you. I can listen to you talk all the time. Learn all the new things. Um, For those of you all listening at home, you can check out Samantha's blog at couturecourtesan.blogspot.com. Yes. We tried to spell it in the other (laughs) podcast we did. We're not going to do that to you this time. We'll just put the link down in the info. Um, You can also check out um, more info about this blog post, about this podcast, I'm sorry, on our blog post at blog.americanduchess.com, where I'm sure I can convince Miss Samantha to share with me pictures of her different things and costumes and clothes that she's made and the ear iron. (laughs) Um, And thank you all so much for listening. And Samantha, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Bye. Bye.